0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org.
1: We see it so often, it sometimes become an afterthought. Poverty. Being too poor to pay the bills, put food on the table, or buy new shoes when the soles wear out. Wearing a multitude of layers of clothing on the walk to school because you can't afford a new winter coat. For those of us born and raised in the middle or upper socioeconomic classes, it's not something we had to think about. We had those things. We have those things, plus more like a college education, said, quote, the common good is the sum total of the social conditions which allow people, either as groups or individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. What is the common good? In the book, Unleashing Opportunity, Michael Gerson, Stephanie Summers, and Katie Thompson suggest that eliminating poverty is working toward common good, but it takes a society working together to make this happen and not relying on government to do its job. By looking at five social justice issues that affect the poor the most, they suggest how we can all work together to build a better society. Today, we are speaking with Ms. Summers, Stephanie is the CEO of the Center for Public Justice. She also sits on the Board of Fellows for Eastern University's PhD in Organizational Leadership. She's a member of the Advisory Board for the Center for Christian Scholarship at Redeemer University College in Canada, as well as a member of the Advisory Board for the Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education in Chicago. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you
0: for
1: having me. Let's just uh, jump right in. A point brought up time and again is the very, diff, what I feel at least is the very definition of a Christian humanist. Every life matters and what happens with that life or is created by that life matters. In fact, each chapter is set up in such a way that it's a major focus. Uh, part one of the chapter being the discover section and then there's the frame portion and finally connecting uh the reader with a real person in this engaged part that wraps up the chapter. So, how did that setup come about? Because it's a very interesting setup.
0: Sure. Well, um, let me maybe uh, answer that question by backing up a little bit about uh, what we were trying to do with the uh-huh. book, because that actually gets us to the answer uh, for the setup. Um, we were really writing the book uh, for folks who are what I would call libertarians by default. Politically. So, folks who care about um, seeing human beings flourish uh, and even are sensitive to issues of social justice and probably regularly use their hands and feet to serve their neighbors. Um, So, you know, doing all kinds of stuff uh, that really is important to help. Um, But so, we, you know, kind of sweet on justice, but really sour on government. Um, And so they're not philosophically committed libertarians, uh, but they sort of Mm -hmm. stepped out of the space that says government has any responsibility. Um, And at the same time, I think are are interested in seeing things change, um, but sort of naive about the fact that lots of stuff is going to have to change. This isn't going to be – addressing poverty isn't going to be something that's – simply done by one institution in society, you know, by a whole bunch of breakfasts or mittens. um, And it's going to be something that requires good work, uh, publicly just work on behalf of government. So we're trying to kind of speak in that way. But in order to do it, uh, we have to come at this by, you know, creating an understanding of the problem. So that's really the discoverer section a framework for thinking about the needed solutions. So it can't just be government to solve it. It can't just be
2: mm-hmm. um, the
0: church's job to solve it. It's got to be bigger than that even. So how do we do that? And then engage is really to say, okay, so what now what? Um, we can't just, uh, you know, talk about, okay, here's the idea of what you can do, but we're <laughs> right. some concrete examples and some concrete stories.
1: <clears throat> All right. Well, one of the great things uh, about the book, in my opinion, is that you kind of start off with this really kind of baby of an idea, and you kind of grow with it. I mean, the book starts off with early childhood and the challenges that face both a, a infant or toddler and his or her parent when they're in a low-income family. Um, and there's especially the time spent with uh, a parent or another nourishing adult that's really focused on in this first chapter, and it's not always easy to see what's going on in those stages, but what's most needed there?
0: Yeah, great question. Uh, Really, uh, the thing that we're trying to demonstrate in our discussion is that you do need time with a caring adult. uh, And Mm -hmm. not just time where an infant or a toddler is disengaged, um, but time when that child's being engaged uh, and You know, uh, my most vivid memory of really understanding this difference uh, is of being with a friend of mine who was an executive director of a youth center run by a church, uh, Mm -hmm. and we were sitting in the office, we were going to have a meeting, but I was kind of early, so she was just running in, and she said, oh, can I listen to these messages really quick? This is, of course, uh, an answering machine. Mm -hmm. So she pushes the button on the answering machine, and uh, we hear basically a message that's been uh, left by a child who clearly had been playing with a cell phone uh, at uh, their home. (laughs) And so the message is just like really long, like 10 (laughs) minutes long. And so we're listening to everything that's going on in this home with this child. And the child is talking to himself, Um, And there's TV and there's music and there's a discussion going on in the background, but none of it is engaging the child, right? What we're talking about uh, is not
2: that (laughs) type
0: type of situation. What we're talking about is... what what scientists call serve and response, so if you think tennis,
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: and really something that's um, enriching the child's imagination, brain science on this stuff is showing that this is actually developing all of the stuff that our brains need uh, to be successful later in life. And so it's got to be something that's uh, an interaction with the child by someone who cares about them.
1: Gotcha. Well, um, cut in that same chapter, and kind, of, and this kind of bounces off of that uh, voicemail that you overheard. Um, these children, they're not getting interacted with, and it brings up the word gap. Um, child raised in a low-income home is often more likely to hear less words than a kid brought up in a home with more money. Um, and in the book you all made a big point about it um, because it's particularly challenging for the kids even as they enter preschool and uh, putting them behind their friends, their peers already and, and just on a vocabulary um, level. Does, the, does this accelerate the need for certified daycares or universal preschool? That's a great question and I'm really glad
0: that you asked it. So there's a couple things going on here. Um, The first thing I want to say is that um, parents' ability to be in these relationships with their children is based on a lot of factors, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And some of it is social, right? Some of it's time. Uh, And so you really have, uh, I would say, a need for the time, discretionary time of a parent uh, to be available to be with their child. Um, so, from a policy perspective, you know, sort of jump there, because your question's really asking about a very live public policy question. Right. Certified <laughs> or universal preschool. <laughs> yes. You know, the thing that's needed is more time um, for parents who are low-income parents, because they don't have the discretionary income to be able to make choices about what um, the care that their child would receive, right? They're uh-huh. not able to for example, um, have the choice of staying home and raising their child. And and we would argue that that's the best thing um, in terms of giving parents that choice as as a real possibility Mm -hmm. for them. Um, So that's one kind of component of that. You know, I think that um, we can't assume that the solution for every family is that – just because you're poor, the only choice you could have is universal pre-K or a certified daycare. On the, on the other hand, uh, I think one of the other challenges, uh, and we talk about this a little bit in the book, but you know, one of the places where we kind of have a, I think struggle, again, to get to the policy question, sort of on the one-size-fits-all, is there are a lot of low-income families that are in relationships with community-based providers. Um, that are really diverse and are in their neighborhoods. Um, I've written about this some other places, but one of the challenges with the certified daycare or universal pre-K programs is that often, um, based on some of the requirements, which are not unhelpful or not good requirements, it's just written for sort of one size fits all, it crowds out good providers who can't meet the standards for things like they don't have X number of available seats for kids, right? They're too small, Mm -hmm. for example. Or they're religiously organized. Um, And so the challenge with that is you may have a provider in a community who is um, close with the family, has a relationship with the family beyond the context of childcare. Say, for example, this is a synagogue-based preschool, right? Right. Um, and the family now is losing more time because they have to truck their kid across the city for the universal pre k option or for the universal, the certified daycare option that's available to them. And I don't know if you've been on a bus lately, but I'll tell you, <laughs> I live in Washington, D.C. riding a bus. is not high-quality time with one's child. Um, and so, you know, it, you, it, what is a good public policy solution to, to give access, right, um, actually sometimes on your minds, uh, the ability to achieve the ends that we're really going for when we're designing the policy. So I would say it does accelerate the need for parents to have to low-income families, for parents of low-income families to have options. But I would say that, you know, the by Daycare Universal Preschool its sort of a one-size-fits-all, and we need more options than that.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's
0: different ways to kind of get it in. So I'm not saying don't do it. Um, I'm just saying it's, it's kind of putting out a one-size-fits-all that actually might not best serve the diversity of parents who are actually already in situations that are clicked good for their
1: families. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, something when I was living in uh, southmost Texas that uh, we heard about quite a lot, where... Um, these kids that were in what we would call uncertified daycares, it was a neighborhood thing or whatever, where maybe one or two moms or a couple of grandmothers would watch the kids, uh, watch a, several of the kids and care for them while the parents were at work. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's definitely kind of, uh, definitely a conundrum from everything that I've, from everything that I've read as well.
0: No, I think, you know, to to tie it back to the piece around the uh, board gap, right, I mean, it is really this volley of, of conversation, um, but also, uh, you know, meaningful interactions, right? We're not mm-hmm. just talking about someone saying goo goo ga to this
2: right. either.
0: Um, and so, you know, the, the question really around the certification or universal pre-K, you know, I, I think some of the ways that groups are getting sort of classed out are related to the types of things that you've just mentioned, not related to the quality of care. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, ensuring quality care is good, right? We Mm -hmm. don't want people Mm -hmm. to be in situations where they are only, again, able to make a decision that's really quite negative for their child.
2: There's lots
0: of ways currently that people are getting high-quality care, right? My Mm mother-in-law cares for uh, my nephew. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, like, she was an early childhood educator before she retired. She's got, you know, pretty sweet situation going on there. <laughs> but you know, it doesn't meet standards in the, in sort of the sense that, uh, that these mm-hmm. types of things uh, are put together. And I, I think that's just something that we need to acknowledge that really, right now. Um, only like, only people who are in a higher socioeconomic class actually have choices available to them. And so to us, that's something structural that uh-huh. needs to be addressed differently than just kind of a one-size-fits-all solution.
1: All right. Well, uh, moving on to the second part, the second chapter of the book, which is the foster care chapter, um, I'm going to just straight out say I was really surprised by um, – how much uh, human child trafficking was discussed in the chapter um, and the number of children that become victims of uh, human trafficking. I mean, it's not really something that we think about, <laughs> sadly. Um, and when we do think about uh, human trafficking, we're generally thinking of young people from like third world countries that are the victims. Uh, now there's several problems with child protective services and social services and foster in the foster care system throughout um, the country. That's not re- really news to any of us. Um, but this—I mean, this isn't generally what's talked about. Why did y'all focus so much on um, the human trafficking aspect?
0: Sure. So in the book, we really we call this the foster care to human trafficking pipeline which is sort of a cumbersome way of talking about it, but um, just verbally, mm-hmm. but really gets at something that's an emerging consensus in law enforcement and in child protective services, and also among nonprofit organizations who serve foster care families, um, and also uh, among uh, people who are sort of in the foster adoption field more broadly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the stats that we are talking about are FBI statistics. So they're really looking at people who come into uh, the criminal justice system as trafficking victims um, and finding out that there's just this crazy number of them who have been foster care involved at some point in their life. Um, Why we made the connection is because that's actually an aha moment that's happening in real time across these um, different both governmental and Uh non-governmental organizations. Um, And so the solutions to it are also happening in real time. Um, This is something that um, even where the foster care system and child protective services work well, um, there's still this uh, dynamic at play. And so we really wanted to shine a light there, um, partially because... Um, There are a whole bunch of places where there can be sort of stops. Um, So some of it is things like how do we have law and policy that um, doesn't, for example, put... uh, trafficking victims into situations where they're being prosecuted as prostitutes, right? Right. Um, Some of the pieces are around how do we identify these things much earlier in the foster care system Mm -hmm. and identify places where there can be interventions in the system itself to stop this from happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Because essentially, you know, these are incredibly vulnerable young people. Um, The thing that we talk about in the book particularly is that they're really vulnerable because they want a family. Right. Um, as the traffickers play upon this um, in the most disgusting of ways. Um, and, you know, for us it was this place where if we're going to wrap our arms around this problem and provide a different future for these young people, this is like full court press. We need everyone in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we really wanted to highlight that because I think a lot of people, you know, they hear something about the foster care system or child protective services, and they just sort of throw up their hands and say it's a horrible system. Yes. We've seen lots of places where things are being done right, and we wanted to amplify, okay, here's mm-hmm. in the midst of this. There's a whole bunch of places where things are being done right, but here's what we've got to keep doing in, in order to get around this.
1: Yeah, and um, I I like how that, w- the, that was kind of more amplified in this book because I feel like that what we're hearing about most of the time are those couples or families that – um, foster or adopt these kids, um, for money, um, a different type of exploitation, but, and kind of with the, um, human trafficking aspect too, I mean, when these people are maybe first time, um, foster parents or adoptive parents or whatever, um, human, uh, uh, Child Protective Services, uh, social services might not realize what kind of uh, people that these kids are going to. I mean, is there anything that really can be done for that, or is it? I mean, is it just a thing that uh, social services will ha- has to be more um, in de- in depth with um, their interviews and their uh, uh, background checks? Maybe,
0: sure, yeah, I mean, I think there there is uh, there are many things that can be done. Um, one of the things that uh, you know you highlighted is something that's also um, I think one of the difficult things about how media portrays uh, per, you know kind of um, tragic circumstances so the reality is right there's lots and lots of foster care placements mm-hmm. where it's not about the money um, and There's also a pretty substantial effort, um, on the part of lots of groups to, you know, step up the pace at which foster Uh care youth, um, whose parental rights have been terminated Uh are put into adoptive families. Um, so, you know, in the DC area, there's a nonprofit called DC 127 that's a faith-based, um, you know, effort. And basically they've made kind of this vow that they want to reverse the list. They want more families waiting to adopt kids out of the foster care system than there are kids available. Right. Um, And they've put, you know, a great amount of effort into this, um, to educating, to acknowledging the reality that foster families need support. It's Uh not not solo activity. Um, There's whole hosts of organizations, you know, I'm familiar with a bunch in California that actually wrap around foster care families and provide Uh So these are nonprofits that provide, you know, parenting training and all these other things, um, and also are in relationship with the social services. And then we talk in the book as well about um, the court-appointed special advocates. Right. Uh, Really, you know, often, um, you know, the goal of foster care placements is family reunification into Uh healthy families. So, you know, we're really talking about a, a situation where, you know, it's a percentage of kids... Um, that are falling into these really dark places, um, but there's lots and lots of structural pieces we actually think are able to be addressed, mm-hmm. but it needs people willing to kind of go there and step into it mm-hmm. um, rather than folks say, oh, you know what, I heard this horrible story on the news and these, these
1: things are just awful there's mm-hmm. nothing we can do. One more, uh, one, one more thing I wanted to uh, kind of say on the aspect of foster care and adoptions mm-hmm. is that it's nice and good that we have, there's all these groups that are doing it right, but I, I, part of the problem from talking with um, friends of mine who have looked to adopt or this, that, and the other, uh, look to adopt or to foster, is that um, how closed some of those groups are to uh, same-sex couples. And there's a number of them that would love to adopt or foster children, and because uh, uh, because they are a same-sex couple, uh, there are those groups that aren't uh, that say, "Oh no, we are not going to allow you to adopt or foster through us." I guess the question is um, that while. Each of these groups, they I guess they do have their kind of self-governing right to deny um, a couple the ability to foster or adopt through them is... I mean, there's, is there still a number of groups out there, I mean, you, in your research for the book, that are able, that we're same-sex couples are able to adopt or foster through, and or is it, and is it just something that we're seeing because of media portrayal about these uh, groups that we're same-sex couples can't adopt through? Sure. Yeah, that's a really
0: complex question, so let see if I can give it a go. Um, so there, there's a couple things at play. Um to answer the question about, yes, are there options available um, for uh, people who are not uh, mother-father families
2: mm-hmm. uh, in sort
0: of the way that the foster um, and adoption system would talk about that. Um, and uh, the answer is yes. Um, and that wouldn't just be same-sex couples. That would also be um, cohabitating couples mm-hmm. who are not married. Um, and it would also be unmarried singles. Uh, so um there's quite a broad range there.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and yes, there are options for all of those uh, and, as well as mother, father families. Um, in fact, you know, one of the other pieces has been um, in a lot of the public policy conversation this um, same-sex marriage has uh, come in not through the Supreme Court but through jurisdictional decisions uh, whether states or municipalities mm-hmm. decisions. Um, lots of organizations that were contracted with um, for many years uh, were basically told that they would now have to um, place children into foster adoption arrangements
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: who they had never had to before Um, And so in some jurisdictions, that actually made some faith-based organizations in particular um, say, you know what, then we're not going to contract to do foster and adoption services anymore
2: Uh um, because
0: that's not what we think is right for a child. Um, The sad thing about kind of that public policy conversation is that it means the kids lose in the end. Uh Um, And, you know, on the ground, when you talk to people who are both... Um, faith based providers who've made that decision to say we're not going to do this in this city anymore if that's the only option we have and when you talk to folks who are running other agencies um, mm-hmm. that don't uh, have a faith based criteria you have a great history 50 years in some places of these organizations referring clients to each other mm-hmm. basically saying hey you know what we don't do what you want. And this goes at the level also of parents surrendering their children. Mm-hmm. So, Because lots of parents come and they say, we really want our kid to go with fill-in-the-blank. And the fill-in-the-blank is we'd like our child to be raised in a mother-father family, in a mm-hmm. loving Christian home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and lots of agencies that don't work with that type of parental family say, mm-hmm. oh, you know what, you really want that many Christian services, you don't want us um so this has worked well for 50 mm-hmm. years um and it's really unfortunate because it's come really to a head um in kind of this larger public policy conversation mm-hmm. uh, around same-sex marriage and the kids are the ones
1: that lose. Okay, well uh I want to move on to um the third part now of uh the the book. Um the issues with the juvenile justice system. Um these, the chapter on the, uh, foster system and the human trafficking pipeline really kind of ties in with the juvenile justice system, um, with the child trafficking victims, because there's definite, a definite lack of safe harbor laws, um, which for those listeners who aren't familiar with safe harbor laws, that those laws enable these kids to get help, um, after they've been rescued from, um, human trafficking. Um, from what I was reading in the book, even uh, a white victim, a white child, is often likelier to get help, um, and not just in the trafficking pipeline, but um, in other uh, ju- juvenile justice issues uh, than a child that uh, belongs to a minority group. Uh, what, uh, how, how true is this? What can we do to address this?
0: Yeah, um, it's incredibly true, uh, and it's one of the saddest things. Uh, and when we're talking about criminal justice reform, this mm-hmm. is something we really need to pay attention to. Um, you know, we talk about it this way uh, in the book. You really see uh, examples of youth offenders mm-hmm. who are, you know, brought first of all, brought into the court system for what essentially are status offenses something mm-hmm. like truancy, right? Mm-hmm. It's a nonviolent crime. They skip school. Right.
2: Um,
0: and they become court-involved, and it's basically like falling into the jaws of the court. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of these things where uh, what you just see statistically is that kids that get picked up from tr- for truancy mm-hmm. who are from more affluent neighborhoods, you know, the police take them home, um, and kids who get picked up for truancy from low-income neighborhoods, they spend time in jail Uh while they're waiting. Um, So what happens, you know, you come before a judge, um, you know, if you are from the suburbs, you end up before the judge in your street clothes with your parents and your lawyer. Uh (laughs) If you um, were detained, uh, you end up wearing uh, clothes that make you look like a prisoner um, and you come in from the side door and most youth. Um, this used to be true, uh-huh. 100% of youth in the country were brought into courtrooms in shackles. This is no longer true. Uh-huh.
2: It's
0: been a pretty significant um, policy change, but, you know, municipalities that are celebrating the change are celebrating things like only 60% of our youth are brought in in shackles now. Uh-huh. Ostensibly because kids are fast and flight risks. <laughs> right. So this is like not because they're violent criminals, uh-huh. right? Um, so you look like a criminal. Um, and so it has a disproportionate effect on the sentence that someone would receive for something really minor. Um, so we need to change that. That's, again, going to require um, a lot of work from a lot of different institutions in society. It requires changes in the criminal justice system itself. It requires mm-hmm. changes in how courts are run. It requires changes uh, from school systems. Um, Because most of the ways that kids get criminal justice involved is from referrals from public schools Uh uh, who are, you know, using the police to solve a lot of disciplinary problems that might be able to be better solved at the school-based level. Um, so, you know, it's going to require a lot of changes, but those are the types of things that are going to have to happen in order for these stats to really change.
1: Uh-huh. Well, and, and uh, really looking at that and then the book lays out, uh, the numbers, like you said, um, uh, but it, I, from my knowledge, uh, this, uh, low income and minority, uh, issue in the youth also translate o- translates over to the adult offenders as far as punishment. For example, here in Louisiana where I live, uh, a black person uh, is more likely to be put on death row for killing a white person than they'd be for killing another black or, or a white person who kills a black person. What kind of message is that sending to the juvenile offenders? Um, it's sending
0: the message that their life matters less um, than the life of someone else. And, um, you know, it's just, it, yeah, I don't even
1: know how to expound on that. That's, that's mm-hmm. certainly the message that it's sending. Mm-hmm. And a criminal record in GV Hall, it puts these kids behind on their schooling, um, even more than they've, uh, they might already be behind, uh, makes it harder for them to go to college and have the chance to pull themselves out of poverty. Uh, you named several groups in the book that work to get kids on the right track to get to college and then groups to help them stay there. But what kind of responsibility does an ordinary person like myself or you um, have to help them?
0: Yeah, this is a great question. And, you know, I think one of the things that we're trying to kind of put together in the book is, is this the the fact that we don't all have to be policy wonks or technical specialists. Uh-huh. We also don't have to be active on, like, every single issue, right? This uh-huh. is a community of citizens working together. So for first piece, for, you know, all, all of us that are kind of the type A overachiever people, <laughs> we can take a deep breath, right? You know, it's not we have to be on all this. I, I will say that, you know, one thing uh, that is, I think, fairly helpful um, that is, and uh, maybe two things. So, so for folks who are sort of ordinary, this isn't the world that we're running in all the mm-hmm. time, right? Um, it's clear through our work um, in doing the research for the book and also in our interviews of folks. And then subsequently when we have been doing our book tour, we've had panelists, um, some of whom are basically like the person, not necessarily the person we were interviewing Mm -hmm. and telling their story in the book, but someone who fits the same profile.
2: Mm -hmm. And it's
0: really clear from these stories that um, there's always someone who helps communicate why college is important and actually helps walk alongside um, the young person to help them persevere and persist in college completion. Um, And You know, it's been really interesting to see that that hasn't always been someone who was affiliated with the college or the Mm -hmm. high school. It could be a neighbor. You know, in certain cases, it was a mentor for a mentoring Mm -hmm. program. Um, You know, in other cases, it was like a coach from, you know, an intramural team or something like that. Or, you know, the youth worker from the church down the street. But these folks were the ones who really made a difference. And, you know, when we start to hear these stories from folks, it becomes really, really clear that that person helped catalyze something different and passed on kind of knowledge, scalability in a really helpful, concrete way. So I, I think that's one thing, right? You know, mm-hmm. most of us are in, you know, again, by virtue of being people who care about justice in society, right. in context where we are encountering young adults who might be... Um, you know, like might be in a situation where literally no one is talking to them about college, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's amazing. That's like quite seriously. You know, almost all these stories we heard, people would say something like, "Yeah, you know, I overheard someone talking about taking the SATs," and I was like, "What is that?" <laughs> right. So you yeah. know, we we just I think for people who you know have been you know, small children whose parents Mm -hmm. were thinking about sending us to college, like, uh, the likelihood of us not knowing what the SATs were is very Mm -hmm. low, but that's not everyone's story. So, um, you know, just having our antenna up and being able to be in the conversations with people with whom we have relationships is one. I think the other piece is, and there's a public policy dimension of this here as well, um we We see this kind of rating system that's been brought in for colleges, and it's really uh-huh. only a rating system based around kind of economic roi so uh-huh. you know what kind of job are you able to get, and what are you being paid at a certain point in time the um, I think the idea of of figuring out ways to protect students from throwing money at institutions where they're Greed is not valuable mm-hmm. um, in the long run. It's a good aim, right? But this mm-hmm. is again sort of one of those examples where the policy itself, only looking at one dimension, um, and you know, even unfortunately, the economic calculations that are being done. Um, to Math itself is not actually great. So it's not looking at things like, okay, certain fields the Mm -hmm. earnings over time are different than the immediate earnings and that would have lacking value. It's not, you know, taking into all the factors that would need to be taken into account. But also it's just looking at the economic dimension, and you know, um, I say this as an English major, when I walk around in the world and talk to other CEOs Mm -hmm. um, and find out what they studied as undergrads, you know, a whole bunch of them say, I I was an English major, Um, and we sort of joke around that English majors are in the world, but um, (laughs) no one is going to look at the salary of your average English major a year out of college and say, wow, that's really good ROI, right? Right. Right. a lot of them end up as baristas, but um, you know, in the longer run, that's really different. And so, um, I would say, just from a public policy perspective, um, you know, yes, important to try and help students navigate the fact that there are institutions that are um, operating not with their best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, helping to be savvy about those things. But there are plenty of institutions that are set up in such a way that. Um, you know the factors that will contribute to their overall flourishing and life success mm-hmm. um, are way, way, way valuable, um, and they can't be measured in terms of the dollar amount of salary a year out of
1: school. Yes, and I know I, I was a journalism major, and so it is mu- well much the same way. <laughs> Heck, I know that many, uh, many places do not want to think about how much we're making even 10 years after we graduate. <laughs> so, totally understand on the, uh, uh, on that. Um, if these kids aren't, and young adults aren't able to go to college and move up in the world, they're all, there's often, um, issues in making ends meet, um, You talk about in the book uh, the payday, I call them payday loan sharks. Um, Over the past couple years, uh, I think we've all been hearing more and more about politicians trying to do their thing and try to regulate these guys. Um, But ultimately, at least in what I've been able to see, not a whole lot happens. Um, Is this a case of needing more uh, nonprofits or for-profit groups that offer low offer lower interest rates or more payback plans. Is it uh, a case of needing more regulation on the loan companies that already exist? Yes, it's both,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then some. You know, uh, one of the things that I think um, was the most stunning to us in this. Research for this book is really seeing the way that um, the profit model for these predatory payday lenders, uh, you know, is structured. Is mm-hmm. that it really requires people to become trapped. Uh, we talk about this as a debt trap,
2: uh-huh.
0: and because um, yeah, it's not profitable otherwise. Uh-huh. Uh, so someone who pays off their loan in the two-week cycle in which they've been given it, uh, they're they're not making really any money off those folks. It really requires heavy use. Uh-huh. Um, repeat use from borrowers who are essentially trapped in these loans for you know uh, really long periods of time, uh, and so that that's what, at just crazy rates of interest for uh-huh. these loans and and fees as well. Um, yes, politicians. I I really want to um, speak well that there are some politicians who have really um, been out there and very forward about trying to press into regulation. Um, some pieces that are really necessary from a consumer protection side. Mm -hmm.
2: Um,
0: But, you know, those um, folks, unfortunately, are kind of few and far between in lots of areas. Um, And, you know, payday lenders in particular are are really strong campaign contributors Mm -hmm. uh, to both sides of the aisle uh, at state levels and also um, in federal (laughs) level. Um, right. and so, and you know it's an open secret. We talk about it in the book. I've written about it other places. Um, you can see how this money flows, um, and so you do see some of the inaction, but also um the you know inaction is also uh, put forward lots of times because uh, there's legislation introduced that looks like it is going to regulate mm-hmm. um and actually, what it's doing is it's enacting it's a law. Um, higher interest rates or lifting of interest rate caps. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's actually, and you know, the, the legislation itself sounds really nice. You know, right? Like just loans for families and things like that. And you're like, who would be against that? So particularly in places where there's ballot initiatives, um, I'll give you an example uh, for any of your listeners in South Dakota. There's going to be two initiatives on the ballot. Uh, one is for a 36% cap, um, and the other one uh, is for an 18% cap. Uh, it sounds right, like mm-hmm. you want an 18% cap, but when you actually get in there and look at what the 18% cap is, it basically says unless the user, the borrower, um, waives the cap. Um, well, essentially, what's happened is that the industry has written this piece of legislation. It's being introduced as a constitutional amendment.
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh,
0: if, if voters vote both ballot initiatives up, so both succeed, because the 18% is a constitutional amendment, it'll succeed. It'll override the ballot initiative at 36%.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But what it means functionally is that every person who, uh, you know, goes in for a loan, uh, will be asked to sign a waiver, in which case there's no limit on the interest or fees charged. And so um, I would say that you know the biggest piece on the regulatory side is not just regulations, it's actually that we need citizens who are voters to be paying attention to what's on their ballot about this stuff,
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: and really press their legislators to not um, put forward pieces of legislation that undo limits that help mm-hmm. stop this from happening um, to families. The connection, you know, really, it's a social service crisis Mm -hmm. uh, because essentially you're watching people need additional social services because they're servicing these huge debt loads. Um, Nonprofits are all about it, but you also see this you know, from governmental social services. And so any legislator that's sympathetic to the idea that we should not be wasting money Mm -hmm. um, should be considering the fact that we are wasting great gaps of money turning it over to payday loan sharks. Um, you know, in a huge way. Now, the most sympathetic legislators out there who are not very active on this will say, well, we don't just want to feed people to loan sharks by stopping these things from happening. And there's a, there's a sentiment to that that I really understand, right? That's mm-hmm. a sympathetic response. Um, but the reality is um, there are uh, responsible credit building options. We need more of them. And there's really innovative ones that have been quite successful. Um, so Credit Union Better Choice is, you know, one that's mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. It's a great example. There are for-profit groups. And there's even banks, the community banks that have made decisions uh, to offer these loans uh, at lower interest rates. There are nonprofits that are doing it as well, and they often do it alongside um, support groups, so people aren't in this alone. You know, one of the mm-hmm. real challenges we document in the book is people feel shame about meeting these, um, and they're trying to sort of take care of their own business, mm-hmm. uh, and that's actually something that the lenders prey upon. You know, wouldn't it be awful if somebody found out you had this loan? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, they're trying to kind of, Sunlight, uh some of those things and mm-hmm. help people understand, like,
1: wow, other people are trapped too, and this is really an awful thing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, something else that was brought up uh, through the book that struck me very hard um, is that politics is not everything, and which I think is really good for us to hear as uh, we have this presidential election coming up. Um the government really can't handle everything, and it's important to have these outside groups, uh, these nonprofits, these for profits that fill in the blanks. And uh, yes, a large number um, of these groups are affiliated with a ministry or church. Um, but more and more Americans aren't being affiliated aren't affiliated with a church or, or a religion. Yes, they might say they're Christian, but they might not attend a church every Sunday or be a member of a church, what kind of challenge um, could that bring as far as helping these people? Um, Yeah.
0: Sure. So, you know, I think a a couple things. I -hmm. I think that, um, you know, the breadth of organizations that are nonprofits that are helping folks um, is is huge, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really highly differentiated, um, and the basis or motivation out of which uh, organizations come uh, is is very broad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't want to give readers the impression or listeners the impression that um, there's only faith-based groups working mm-hmm. on
2: these things. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. Um,
0: however, we do really see it at the community level, and we were really trying to write, you know, in some ways because... Young adults have said, you know, a pox on both your houses, Washington. (laughs) Um, We were really trying to help write about stuff that you can deal with in your local community because these issues are in your backyard. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to point to um, groups that we know are on the street addressing these issues right now. And Mm -hmm. often in low-income communities, those are faith-based organizations. Um, You know, the way that... Mm -hmm. um, one of the juvenile justice advocates put this to me was, yeah, you're the people, the faith-based community, are the people who hang in there um, when everybody else wants to give up because Mm -hmm. you have a reason to believe that life has real value. Now, I I really appreciate that. That's a compliment uh, to the faith-based community. I don't think it's exclusive to the faith-based community. Um, You know, I know many people who would call themselves secular who are motivated because they believe that all lives have equal value. So um, I don't think that's something that only the faith-based community brings to the table. But in terms of the institutional expressions of that in low-income communities that can actually help mobilize and address Mm -hmm. it, that's often the groups that are there um, more often than not um, and it you know just descriptive of kind of the reality that we found at the street level so consequently that's why there's this focus on that and telling those stories in the book mm-hmm. you know so it's not to be excluded and it's not to say hey these other organizations don't address this they do um, the other piece is that what we found <laughs> in in these communities is that often, these faith-based groups, these faith-based organizations, Mm -hmm. ministries and such, they don't require anybody as a volunteer to believe what they believe Mm -hmm. um, in in terms of their theological framework or the the motivations Mm -hmm. or why folks want help. Um, They're really happy to have help. Um, And, you know, I can speak to this from my own personal experience as well. You know, in D.C. for many years, Uh, probably 20-something years now, there's been a home-cooked breakfast every Sunday morning in Southwest D.C. for our our homeless neighbors. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it comes from a church and they cook the meal from scratch because Mm -hmm. they believe it's Jesus' table, right? Right. Half the volunteers for that program um, are, you know, what I would call church-wounded, really angry at the church, Mm -hmm. um, and will maybe never... Um, come upstairs to the sanctuary for worship uh-huh. uh, but they are passionate about serving their neighbors uh, and um, really passionate about being part of this community that's trying to do something really important there's very few options uh, for food on Sunday mornings in uh-huh. the area this is the only hot meal that's served uh-huh. um, and so you know it's, it gets a pretty significant uh, number of guests and Um, you know, people will tell you, hey, you know, I don't believe what these people believe, why they're doing it, this is why I'm doing it. But, um, you know, I think it's important that we're in this work together. So I would say um, it's a, you know, it's a potential challenge that's out there um, for the people who become non-affiliated, but Uh I I think the reality is, um, you know, most of the organizations that are on the ground doing Uh the work, um, they're not, you know, asking
1: you know, for you to sign a statement of faith before you become a volunteer <laughs> okay um, we're gonna s- uh, start on wrapping up the interview now <laughs> I think I've kept you talking long enough um, you did write this book uh, with two co-authors like I uh, mentioned in the introduction um, if they were here uh, do you think they'd have anything they'd like to add that we need to know
0: sure As Mike Gerson was on, uh, he would definitely want to point out that we didn't go far enough in our um, chapter on payday lending Uh um, because he really advocated for, and we ended up cutting it out, us including the lottery. Um, And part (laughs) of why uh, we cut it out is because uh, we were really trying. We we actually found the payday lending thing so egregious and so much. at the local level, where there was actually a lot of action right now. So there Mm -hmm. were a lot of entry points for someone to address this uh, that we just felt like, okay, we want to stick with that rather than trying to broaden it to lottery, which, you know, pretty much functions in the background of most of our lives. Um, You know, I'll give you an example. So, you know, D.C., we've had this big snowstorm, Mm -hmm. listening to the traffic news. Um, and the weather report comes on, right? And every time the weather report comes on, it's sponsored by the Maryland Lottery. <laughs> and so the, the, we, uh, the weather person, basically at the end of their giving the weather, moves seamlessly into an announcement. This so is something to the effect of, you know, your reward for snowing should be some of these scratch-off tickets from the <laughs> Maryland Lottery. And oh, by the way, your neighbors are going to be shoveling as well so you should pick up a couple for your friends, it's fun, and you know, you need this reward. Well, this is actually an example, you know, unfortunately, like, where government's gone so awry, mm-hmm.
2: um,
0: where, you know, I think government has an incredible responsibility, that's part of what we're trying to put in the book, is there are certain things only government can and should do, um, but the lottery is the one that's like just Super messed up, and so if Mike Gerson was here, mm-hmm. he would want to say um, that we need to be people who work to end lotteries. They mm-hmm. prey upon the poor, um, so they're basically uh, using <laughs> government's power to mm-hmm. remove. Income from people who have the least of it um, Uh by ensnaring them in an activity that um, has almost zero potential ROI. Uh
2: Um,
0: And it is essentially a way for government to just prey upon the poor to fund its mandates. Um, And if you look at the places where government has said at the various state levels, Lottery funding is used to, say, fund education. And, Mm -hmm. like, um, you really start to see the ways that this is um, a shell game. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, revenue that should have been spent on education funding in the first place then gets funneled somewhere else and backfilled by the revenue from the lottery. Right. So it is really um, a terrible injustice perpetrated. (laughs) Um, And, you know, uh, you see in even neighborhoods, you know, where... Uh, ostensibly, the school new school's been built by lottery money. Right? Mm-hmm. You have this, like the lottery signs that say things like "your ticket out of here." I mean, it's awful. So yes. if Gerson was here, that's what he would want to throw in here for sure. Um, if Katie Thompson was here, I think she would want to make sure that because she's she's twenty five, right? Mm-hmm. So she's in this place where she's writing to her friends, um, and I think she would want to say hey, you know, we really need to be people that are paying attention rather than mm-hmm. advocating our responsibility to be in this space for the people mm-hmm. who need us. Um, and it's the reason, you know, again, I said at the beginning, we sort of wrote this for the libertarians by default. And I don't mean that to be unkind. It just, is, folks, you know, uh, we have a whole generation of young people who have basically said, I'm possible both your house in Washington, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, what, it, what it means is we don't end up uh, with some of the structural changes that really need to happen that require citizens to think like citizens and be engaged um, on, on a whole host of these issues that we mm-hmm.
1: talked about today. Uh, and I have to say that the lottery uh, point is probably very apt, uh, since we are just a few weeks removed from that 1.5 billion Powerball jackpot. Um, yeah. And I remember when that um after that was all over, seeing a story out of it was Tennessee or Kentucky about a young lady who uh, set up a one of those GoFundMe accounts or something similar, trying to get some help because she said she spent all of her money on trying to buy ticket buying tickets to try to win that one point five billion dollars, and it's it's really the truth uh, that the lottery does prey upon the poor and it just, uh, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, really. Well, I I think the
0: thing that's the most troubling about it, right, is that Mm -hmm. it's government doing it. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) you know, and, um, you know, it's not just, hey, government's not, you know, Mm -hmm. paying attention adequately or regulating Mm -hmm. adequately. It's It's like, nope, government's Mm doing this. Um, With really savvy marketing, right? Pure-to-peer marketing is, like, the best marketing ever. So, you know, isn't it great when the lottery is making this point about, like, hey, you're going to be stuck shoveling snow with your neighbors. Make sure you get them some lottery tickets, too. I mean, just crazy stuff. So, yep, it's, it's, I think, a deeply troubling thing that, you know, uh, I wish we could have addressed more in the book, but... You, know, mm-hmm. you have to make some decisions about what you're going to put in the book, and that was
1: one of them. Right. Now we do like to give our guests the last word. What would you like to leave us with?
0: Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, and you've asked great questions. I really do hope that um, some folks will pick up a copy of the book. We actually um, worked with an independent publisher, a micro press, purposefully. Uh, because they have a vision for economic flourishing in their community, it's an old steel town, Beaver Falls,
2: Pennsylvania, mm-hmm.
0: uh, and they really wanted to uh, create some jobs in mm-hmm. their community. Uh, and so the folks that they've worked with, all of the designers, all those pieces, um, are all trying to give opportunity to folks who are in situations where there's very little. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you know, for us, it was a privilege to work with them. They've been great to work with. So, you know, that's one piece. I think the other would be, you know, this again is really designed to be a book that um, causes a conversation but also causes action. So, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: we would really encourage folks to um, read it together and talk about what the implications might be. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be really hard, for example, even with the five issues that we bring up in the book. Um, to become policy experts on all of them, especially since a lot of these things are happening at a state or municipal level, not just, mm-hmm. just a federal level. And so um, it's great if you think about, like, the best group project you ever mm-hmm. had um, to think about how you would divide up the work to say, hey, could someone go find out about, you know, what is being done in our state about, say, predatory lending mm-hmm. or how the foster care system is working here or what the trafficking laws are like or, you know, I think those people... Pieces. Um, it's work that ordinary citizens can do, but we don't think about it very mm-hmm. much. Um, so that's one piece. And then also, um, you know, together, kind of asking about what are the resources that are available to us in our communities mm-hmm. um, that are, you know, not public policy questions and not government parts to solve, um, but really the place where you know what's needed or are willing volunteers who can help, mm-hmm. either be in relationship or uh, you know walk alongside in some way that's really long term or short term mm-hmm. uh, but would really help move the needle
1: on some of these issues mm-hmm. well thank you so much for joining us here on Christian Humanist Profiles uh, dear listeners we will put the information on how to order the book uh, on our website and in the show notes the Christian Humanist Profiles is a part of the Christian Humanist Network uh, our press liaison is Kristen Filippic I'm Britt Stack, and we will see you next time. God bless.